It's not so easy picking out cars and light trucks for your federal fleet. No more garages full of Chevy Luminas. Now the General Services Administration, which oversees these things, has issued an online tool to help fleet managers pick out electric vehicles. We get more now from GSA's Executive Director for Fleet Management, Christina Kingsland. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And the Assistant Commissioner for Travel, Transportation, and Logistics, Crystal Philcox. Crystal, good to have you back. Great to be here. In looking over the field of electrical cars... I mean, there's not just one thing. There's all electric, there's hybrid electric, there's plug-in electric, there's this, that, and the other. Hydrogen, if you're in certain parts of the country, little Hindenburgs. So what does this tool do? And I mean, what is, how do you begin to pick out the next round of cars to replace those those uh, gas guzzlers? Yeah, uh, great question. So first, let me just say that we are really excited about this effort. You know, GSA Fleet has been working with our telematics provider, Geotab, to deploy telematics and to collect necessary fleet data and um, you know find ways to use that data to help agencies transition to zero emission vehicles. And so we are really proud to now finally introduce the electric vehicle suitability assessment tool, um, EVSA for short, and uh, it's a long name, but we, uh, we promise that the user interface is very simple. So what this tool does is it uses fleet telematics data to make uh, sort of informed vehicle replacement recommendations uh, regarding fleet electrification. And so it'll use real world performance information from vehicles that are out operating in our fleet today. And then it suggests the type of EVs to acquire based on that data. So it really makes planning for uh, transitioning to EVs as seamless as possible. It helps users kind of optimize for EV acquisition and deployment strategies and, you know, using these predictive analytics. So GSA is really leading sort of this federal-wide transition to zero emission footprint in our vehicles. And we're, we really believe that this tool is just one more option sure. in the federal fleet manager's toolkit. It helps them achieve that goal. Well, Christina, so, let me ask you this. If, you, if the telematics should show that there's a couple of drivers and every day they leave an office and they have to drive 250 miles into the desert to do something, maybe check water tables for the cactuses and then go back to the office, then there's no charging station out there and it's a 500 mile round trip, chances are it would say, well, maybe you need a hybrid. Whereas if you are doing point to point driving all around the Bay Area where there's a charging station, there's more of those than Wawa's, then you can (laughs) maybe get by with a fully electric. Is that the type of thing that it helps you do? That's exactly right, Tom. So it looks at the actual operating data on the vehicle. So how many trips per day, how many miles per trip, you know, the fueling experience on an electric vehicle is very different than that of a gasoline vehicle. And given the time that it takes to charge, it's often just, you know, better to do it where the vehicle is garaged. And so this tool is doing exactly what you said, looking at those, the operational information of, you know, how many miles are you going at any given time, and then allows the user to set essentially an acceptable range of how many times you want to publicly charge for that, you know, vehicle. And then, you know, looks at a whole year of data. Hey, we predict that you'll have to publicly charge maybe twice. And that's going to be completely acceptable. It's helping folks get those low-hanging fruit and, you know, select electric vehicles where it makes the most sense for the mission requirements. It also helps them compare the cost and the fuel savings and CO emission savings as well. 
And no charging stations within 100 feet of a tavern, because then you'd have to get in the car afterwards, I suppose. But (laughs) where do the telematics come from? Is this logs kept by drivers, or do the cars in the fleet now pretty much broadcast what they're doing? Yeah, so actually, it's the telematics are included in GSA leased vehicles in particular. So when we get a new vehicle, we have a telematics device automatically put into that vehicle when it's delivered to us. And so we get the basic information here at GSA Fleet, and then our customers have the option also of doing a what we call it the Pro Plus plan, where they get access to additional information. And for the use of the EVSA tool, it's really important to have GPS data, right, to understand where a vehicle is going to better understand, you know, the electric vehicle suitability. And so they would need to do that additional service in order to capture the full telematics data through either our OEM-provided telematics devices, but it all goes through our telematics partner, Geotab. And so we are collecting that information, and you need to collect a few months of data, you know, for it to be useful, but it's all there and it's all coming together um, in the only FedRAMP um, authorized telematics um, database today. Right. And Geotab also does this commercially? They sure do, of course. Yep. And uh, we worked with them to develop a a federal instance for it and kind of make it fit with our business model as well so that they know exactly what vehicles are available on our schedule. And um, they have included the monthly and mileage lease rates for points of comparison. We're speaking with Christina Kingsland. She's executive director for GSA Fleet Management and Crystal Philcox, assistant commissioner for travel, transportation and logistics at GSA. So this tool then is tuned down to the vehicle. That is to say, if you have multiple uses and use cases, and I imagine every agency does, that doesn't say, well, you need all this kind of car or all that kind of car, but it's fine grained per user, you might say. It's actually um, fine-tuned to sort of the class of vehicle that that folks are driving. We have a number of groupings of types of vehicles that we have out there. Um, Everything from, you know, small compact sedans to large trucks, like very large trucks. So it's looking at, this tool is really looking at the, the range data, um, it's, uh, it, it also looks at operating cost uh, of that current vehicle, and uh, it estimates the fuel consumption, the carbon emissions of that existing vehicle. So there's a lot of data there to help you, uh, you know, figure out and decide. And does um, it recommend brands or how does it map across, you know, the need to buy American for the fleet? Because not all of them are, and like Volvos, for example, that's owned by the Chinese now, even though they have some great hybrids and stuff. So how does that all work such that you get an actual choice of something you can go take a bid on? Yeah, that that comes back to the instance that they specialized for the federal fleet. So they actually use the models that we have awarded that are available to federal fleet customers. And it's very model-specific information. Crystal mentioned the range. It comes down to the model and pairing that with the existing vehicle and the use of that existing vehicle. It's pretty cool. I just wanted to get to brands and names, but does it filter out the ones you can't buy as a federal agency? It does. It only pairs with the ones that are available to them to purchase on on our existing contracts. Yep. And just refresh my memory, does GSA buy them on behalf of agencies or does GSA just keep tabs and the agencies buy them on their own? So for the federal leased fleet, we buy and own them on behalf of agencies. And then we lease those vehicles that we own back out to our federal customers. And then on the agency owned side of the house, we set up all the contracts and the contracts are directly with GSA 
So technically we buy the vehicle from the supplier and then resell it immediately to um, the federal customer. And what are you hearing from federal customers with respect to the fact that a lot of these cars are expensive relative to the plain old gas counterparts. Yeah, there is a sticker price difference, right, for on electric vehicles. It's it's a bit higher than um, the regular gas vehicles at this time. So uh, the EVSA tool, you know, it takes it takes that price difference into account. And it also kind of lets agencies see the lifetime cost savings of transitioning to zero emission vehicles. We're using that real data on actual awarded costs for for makes and models that that the GSA fleet has available. And then we give agencies this comprehensive evaluation of the cost of operating that electric vehicle. And just a question on that point you made, zero emission. What about hybrids, which are not zero emission because there's an engine in it? You may never use it that much. And the plug-in hybrids, you may never get to the engine, even though there's gas in the tank, I guess, there. Do those count? So the PHEVs do. The plug-in hybrid electric vehicles do count, but the standard hybrid does not. So if you have the option for that zero emission operation, which the PHEV does provide, um, that does count within the executive order today. The standard hybrid, not so much. The tool does give you that option, too, just like you mentioned, Tom, in the beginning about, hey, maybe a full battery electric doesn't work for you, but a PHEV absolutely would. So this tool then is not just for GSA use, but you expect it to be used by the fleet managers throughout the government. All of our federal agencies are uh, have this tool available now to them. Anyone who leases vehicles from GSA fleet, that's about 227,000 government vehicles out there. And if agencies are enrolled in our telematics program, particularly this Pro Plus subscription that Christy mentioned, they then have access to this tool now. And we're offering federal agencies really two ways to use this tool. So it's either self-service or full service. And right now, as we're initially rolling out this new capability, uh, GSA Fleet and Geotab are offering a full service model where we run this EVSA analysis on behalf of the customer agency. So we'll analyze the results. We'll present the findings back to the agency as a consultation and um, and. Uh, and we're currently offering that at no additional cost. So, um, and then after agencies get familiar with the tool and how to interpret those results, um, then our, our Pro Plus customers will be able to use that system themselves, use their own dedicated database, and uh, we'll have support, um, you know, available to them to help agencies set up uh, and and follow those instructions. Any indications of take up of this yet, or is it too early? We do have several expressions of interest already. We have, I believe, three agencies that are already getting started on it and doing taking a whole agency-wide approach as well. All right. Christina Kingsland is Executive Director for GSA Fleet Management. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. And Crystal Philcox is Assistant Commissioner for Travel, Transportation, and Logistics at GSA. Always great to have you on. Great to be here with you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to that tool. Drive the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, 
associate provost at Auburn University and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. 
I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, 
you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.